Svetlina. Good afternoon, everyone. And uh, I'm great, grateful that uh, the discussion group has given me this opportunity to share my thoughts with you about humanity, uh, inclusive positivism, and the law of armed conflict. I will uh, give you some backgrounds about this topic and then uh, present the, quest, the driving questions, my hypotheses, and a theoretical uh, basis for my hypothesis. And then a few words about how I delimit the inquiry before launching into some substantive discussions and analysis of the material. And then finally, I present my tentative conclusions. This afternoon's topic is one of the two research themes that I recently began pursuing at the Swedish Defense University. It uh, initially arose uh, in, in the context of my previous work on military necessity. In a nutshell, <clears throat> it is often said that the law of armed conflict or LOAC accounts or is it strikes a, a meaningful and realistic compromise between military necessity and humanity and that therefore the law accounts for military necessity and humanity. In the military necessity discourse, it is then said that because the law of armed conflict accounts for military necessity, military necessity may not be invoked de novo as a ground for justifying deviations from the unqualified rules of LOAC. Now, this is an uncontroversial position. Uh, also the claim or the fact that military necessity may be invoked vis-a-vis -a, -vis a rule of LOAC if but only if that ruling question envisions military necessity exceptions expressly and in advance. That's fine. But if that is the case with military necessity, would we not be compelled to say the same thing about humanity? It is often said that LOAC strikes a balance between compromise between military necessity and humanity, and that therefore LOAC accounts for military necessity and humanity. Wouldn't it follow then that humanity may not be invoked de novo vis-a-vis -vis unqualified rules of LOAC unless those rules themselves expressly and in advance envision humanity exceptions. While this position may not be so, may not be so troubling when it comes to certain humanitarian desiderata, let's say, it would be nice if you did this or if you did that. But when compelling humanitarian imperatives are involved, should we or would we uh, stand on this conclusion that humanity is excluded as a ground for justifying deviations from unqualified rules of LOAC? So there are two 
major situations when this becomes problematic. One is where humanity demands what law act prohibits. The law prohibits something, but humanity demands it. The other situation is where humanity condemns what LOAC permits. What should one do when faced with such stark options? So there are two questions, two corresponding hypotheses and two corresponding theoretical bases that I would like to present today. The first question is, does acting as directed by humanitarian imperatives restore its lawfulness under LOAC, all things considered, even if the Lord's positive rules prohibit acting in such a way? My hypothesis would be to say yes, and there are two reasons. To the extent that process, whatever you call, I mean by it, either treaty negotiations or through the formation of custom, the lawmaking process of LOAC cannot resolve in advance all actual or potential conflicts between the rules that the process would eventually posit and uh, contrary humanitarian imperatives that may arise in the future. This is the case with any legislative, legislative activity. You cannot foresee and anticipate and account for such conflicts in the future for all circumstances in advance. Now, if that is true, and to that extent, then the humanitarian imperatives that escaped exclusion through this process might act as a residual free-floating layer of lawfulness determination over and above positive law act. The theoretical foundation for the possibility that this hypothesis could be true is the uh, necessity thesis or actually it's called the necessity component of the incorporation thesis, which is found in inclusive legal positivism. I will come back to this uh, concept later in our discussion. But this is this necessity thesis or component that could uh, explain why this hypothesis, what I, that I called humanitas gebot, uh, might be true. The second question then is as follows. Does failing to act as directed by humanitarian imperatives impair its lawfulness under LOAC, all things considered, even if the Lord's positive rules authorize declining to, such, uh, declining to act in such a way? So if the law allows you not to act in accordance with as directed by humanitarian imperatives, does that act remain lawful or does that act become unlawful because it is contrary to humanitarian imperatives? 
the hypothesis I have is that it could be, could be made unlawful because humanitarian imperatives demand, uh, condemn such acts for the same reason and to the same extent as the first hypothesis. And for this, we might find a theoretical foundation in the sufficiency thesis or the sufficiency component of inclusive legal positivism's incorporation thesis. And both the sufficiency and necessity uh, components of this uh, inclusive legal positivism evolve around how you construe the rule of recognition uh, as it is understood in the Harshian and neo-Harshian jurisprudence. The scope of my inquiry is shaped by several considerations and I uh, enumerate them up front. My focus is on LOAC's ability to identify its ultimate rules on its own. What I mean by that is that although it is accepted in the practice of international humanitarian law and LOAC that you may have recourse to rules coming from other adjacent fields of international law, such as human rights law, refugee law, use at villain, and international criminal law, and so on and so forth. What I'm interested in is LOAC's ability to identify its own content without having to rely on the assistance of other fields. So whereas it is possible that most of the problems that I identify in my research may be resolved for practical purposes by reference to such other areas, that is not what I'm interested in. I'm interested in uh, finding out whether LOAC can resolve its own problems. And this also means that I would be hesitant to invoke meta rules like uh, lex specialis or use cogens in order to resolve the problems for LOAC. Once again, I'm interested in LOAC's own ability to find its own rules without aid from such uh, techniques. I am also making some potentially contentious assumptions. One key assumption entails the distinction between what I call humanitarian imperatives from what I call humanitarian desiderata. So it's one thing for humanity to say that it's, it would be good if you did this or if it would, be, it would be regrettable if you did that. That's one set of considerations, what I call humanitarian desiderata. Another set is what humanity would demand or condemn. The distinction between these two types of considerations is in fact crucial in my discussion, but it is not that self-evident that the distinction is uh, viable, let alone easy to maintain. I also um, 
make, make the assumption that inclusive legal positivism is in fact useful, can, be, can offer some useful insight when discussing bodies of material like LOAC. But once again, that it would be interesting to ask whether inclusive legal positivism is uh, useful in this way at all. But I'm not going to get into that discussion. I'm simply taking it for granted that this jurisprudential theory is relevant and useful. And subsidiary, uh, uh, as a corollary to that assumption, I'm also making, assuming that the rule of recognition is uh, the, I'm making the assumption that how humanitarian imperatives operate in the context of LOAC's lawmaking process and rule discovery are sufficiently analogous in content in inclusive legal positivism's rule of recognition. Here too, humanitarian imperatives and public morals are treated in my discussion as sufficiently analogous. But that may be uh, uh, questionable if you reflect more on it. So that was a long uh, introduction and also uh, basically a series of disclaimers before launching into the substantive discussion of the matter. Now let us try to do that. So by way of uh, uh, an overview, for those who are not familiar with inclusive legal positivism, there are a number of uh, elementary concepts that I would like to run you through. First, there is this thing called a rule of recognition according to, uh, in every legal system, according to uh, legal positivists. So a rule of recognition is the widely accepted criteria, set of criteria accepted by the system's law applying officials. When those officials seek to identify what the valid rule on this or that matter is. And when we speak of law applying officials in this context, most of the time we have officials like judges in mind. So judges are presented with a case where two parties argue about the applicable rules. Sometimes they are diametrically opposed about, uh, in their views about what rules apply. So it is the judge's job to identify a rule that is to use a rule of recognition so that they can identify the valid rule in the legal system. So it matters who the law applying officials are in the discussion of legal positivism. It also matters that whatever the rule of recognition may be, the officials would have to apply the rule of recognition more or less consistently. 
there may be some disagreements about what the rule of recognition contains amongst different law applying officials, but there would have to be some degree of agreement uh, amongst such law applying officials as to what the rule of recognition is or contains. Now, according to one school of legal positivism, It is possible, although not necessary, that a rule of recognition may contain a criterion for the validity of a would-be rule, that that would-be rule conform with uh, moral uh, norms. So in other words, in this possible legal system, whatever the parliament or the lawmaking body may legislate would have a final checklist that it has to uh, uh, jump. That is, does this would be rule of law conform with moral, uh, moral norms? If the answer is yes, it becomes law. If the answer is no, however, uh, that is in the rule of recognition, then the rule does not become law. And whether or not the law applying officials see this final criterion about the norm's conformity with morals, this is what makes a rule of recognition, if there is a, such a content in the rule of recognition, this rule of recognition reflects inclusive legal positivist uh, ideals. There are two variations on this inclusively positivistic rule of recognition. One is the narrower or the, mid, the less thick version of the two, the so-called necessity component or the necessity thesis. According to one legal philosopher, I'm gonna quote this because then you will have a clear idea of what this necessity uh, component is. And I'm quoting now, there are conceptually possible legal systems in which it is a necessary condition for a norm to be legally valid that its content be consistent with some set of moral norms. Thus, the necessity component allows morality to serve as a constraint on promulgated law. It is not enough for a, for a norm to be valid that its component stands in the appropriate logical relation to the content of some moral norms. That is, it, for example, the rule addresses the same matter as the moral rule, moral norm does. It has to conform with the content of the moral rule. That is a necessary condition for the rule's validity. So it's essentially, it's almost like um, uh, public morals have a veto on the lawmaking process of a legal system unless what's coming up is consistent with the moral rules, that rule, what, what comes up, does not become law in the end. So that's the necessity thesis. Moving on to the sufficiently thesis, sufficiency thesis, which is the thicker version of an inclusive legal positivism, I quote again, there are conceptually possible legal systems in which it is a sufficient condition for a norm to be legally valid 
that it reproduces the content of some moral principle. The sufficiency com component allows then that an unpromulgated norm might be legally valid in virtue of its moral content. So on this view, whatever happens to be consistent with the moral imperative on the matter becomes law. Whatever the positive rules of the legal system may have to say about, about the matter. And if you take it even further, the now valid rule, which by virtue of its consistency with moral uh, rules, would basically invalidate whatever is on the book. It basically replaces uh, an otherwise valid rule of positive law if that valid rule of positive law is inconsistent with moral, uh, moral principles. So it's a sweeping claim that whatever is morally uh, uh, sound or consistent with moral rules basically is law. So this is, uh, in a nutshell, the contours of inclusive moral, uh, legal positivism and its necessity uh, or sufficiency versions of it. When we move to the rule of recognition of the law of armed conflict, for starters, who are LOAC's law-applying officials? We have international court officials, including judges. Maybe prosecutors are kind of quasi-law applying officials. Uh, we, we might say that. But the judges at international courts, including international criminal tribunals, would be quite unproblematically law applying officials whose job it would be to identify law acts rule of recognition. I would include in this list also state organs, especially those who speak on behalf of a state at diplomatic conferences or other such appropriate occasions, if their statement were to count as state practice or opinion use or both as the case may be. I would also add, although somewhat more controversially, uh, writers of official LOAC manuals issued by states. And also perhaps intergovernmental fact finders, especially those commissioned, uh, mandated by the Human, uh, Human Rights Council or the General Assembly into events like Georgia, where uh, people, those fact finders would apply what they consider to be the valid rules of LOAC uh, in vis-a-vis -vis the facts on the ground. And last but not least, although not uncontroversially perhaps, also ICRC officials, the officials of the International Committee of the Red Cross because of the committee's special status under LOAC. And how consistent, so if those, to the extent that those law applying officials of LOAC can identify, apply a rule of recognition, in their efforts to discover rules, how consistent would the rule of recognition accepted amongst them have to be? One problem here is that this is primarily a matter of opportunity. 
when rules are uncontroversial, like for example, the content, most of the contents of the four Geneva Conventions, we wouldn't really need to go through an elaborate process of rule of recognition in order to find out what the rules are. You just go to the Geneva Conventions and find it in them. So the opportunities, on, uh, opportunities may not arise so readily where we can observe the kind of rule of recognition that the law, official, law applying officials use in law. Another hurdle here about the consistency of LOAC's rule of recognition is to what extent can we say that it is consistently applied by those various law applying officials. These, this is a question that remains quite open and contentious. I accept that. Now, then let me try to formulate for uh, the purposes of examining material, what the necessity-driven rule of recognition might look like for the law of armed conflict. Such that my first hypothesis, that is humanitas gebot, might, would be true. So here's a formulation I, I came up with. A norm becomes a valid rule of law if but only if and only to the extent it is not inconsistent with humanitarian imperatives. So that would be the content of a would-be LOAC uh, rule of recognition which exhibits the necessity thesis. Similarly, I try to formulate the LOAC's rule uh, the sufficiency thesis, such that my second hypothesis would be true. So it would look like this. A norm becomes a valid rule of LOAC if it is as directed by humanitarian imperatives and as a consequence, it invalidates whatever rule LOAC otherwise contains that is inconsistent with it. So, do we have such a rule of recognition in Let's start with the necessity version of uh, inclusive legal positivism as applied to law. There are several uh, representative instances where this kind of consideration becomes material. The first one is the question of whether to, whether to repatriate or decline to repatriate prisoners of war against their will after the cessation of hostilities. Here, the unqualified law act rule uh, in question is Article 118 of the Third Geneva Conventions, the first paragraph which I read now. Prisoners of war shall be released and repatriated without delay after the cessation of active hostilities, end quote. There is no qualifying, there is no qualifier to this, uh, this, this rule. 
In other words, the detaining power must release and repatriate all of its POWs after the cessation of hostilities. With what kind of normative humanitarian imperatives or imperative or imperatives would this rule conflict? Well, the humanitarian imperative might be that POWs ought not to be repatriated against their will. When the circumstances are such that they fear persecution, for example, back home, that POWs ought not to be repatriated. In fact, this was a problem from the Korean War onwards, that is even before the Geneva Conventions were in fact adopted in 1949, that some detaining powers declined to repatriate POWs in their custody against their will to places like North Korea, China, and the Soviet Union. So on its face at least, such practices are in breach of the unqualified requirement of Article 118 the, of the Third Geneva Convention. Under no circumstances would the, PO, would the detaining power be entitled to decline to repatriate its POWs. So, if we were not to rely on the other fields of international law, such as human rights law or refugee law, especially with the emergence of Nora Fulmont, as, as, a, as a sort of a counterpoint, then how would LOAC be able to explain that declining to repatriate POWs against their will, although on its face, contrary to the letters of the letter of Article 118, the Third Geneva Convention, is in fact not unlawful. We would want LOAC to be able to say that, wouldn't we? So one, one solution would be to say this. The mere fact, the mere fact that a positive law act rule in the, in the shape of Article 118 unqualifiedly obligates post-hostilities POW repatriation, all of them, may not have resolved potential non-conflicts with contrary humanitarian imperatives or demands, for example, do not repatriate POWs against their will, then it is not clear whether the unqualifiedness, if you will, of Article 118 in relation to such imperatives was in 1949 when it was adopted or has since been really conclusive for LOAC on the matter. Perhaps, despite its categorical language, Article 118 cannot be said to have extinguished that element of humanity that, which demands non-repatriation under, under, circum, under certain circumstances. In 1949, when people gathered in Geneva and wrote Article 118, they could not have uh, accounted for and extinguished for posterity all situations in which such genuine conflicts between the rule they are promulgating and the humanitarian imperative, such as do not repatriate POWs against their will uh, and resolve them in advance. 
So this is something that a legal system cannot do. This we know. So wouldn't it be more appropriate if we accepted a rule of recognition according to which conformity with humanitarian imperatives is in fact a condition before something can become a valid rule of law. There are similar certain uh, examples, uh, especially uh, in, this, uh, in relation to the treatment of POWs. So one unqualified rule states, it's Article 22 of the Third Geneva Convention, that prisoners of war may be interned only in premises located on land. So they must all be interned on land without any exception. At least what, that's what the text says. But this may conflict with humanitarian imperatives when the circumstances are right, that the POWs ought to be interned not on land, but on, for example, uh, aboard a naval vessel at sea. And this actually happened during the Falkland Malvinas conflict in the 80s, where the British authorities decided to intern Argentinian POWs aboard British naval vessels, rather than having to bring their POWs thousands and thousands of miles away on some facilities on land, because uh, Falkland is uh, rather a remote set of islands. It would the, the British decided in consultation with the ICRC that it is more expedient and not contrary to humanitarian consideration, the well-being of such POWs, that they be interned aboard a naval vessel instead. Here too, because in 1949, when delegates drafted, wrote Article 22 of the Third Geneva Convention, the delegates could not have anticipated and accounted for and excluded such genuine conflicts that might arise between Article 22, the unqualif apparently unqualified content of Article 22 on the one hand and contrary humanitarian demands, uh, uh, imperatives on the other hand. So it would be more appropriate, wouldn't it be more appropriate if we supposed that in LOAC's rule of recognition, there's a final layer in the validity criterion that says that the rule must conform with humanitarian imperatives before it becomes a valid rule of law. There's another, there are two more um, examples. I will not be as elaborate in the discussion of these two uh, examples. One is the, the so-called humanitarian occupation uh, debate. So in a prolonged occupation regime, both in Cyprus and uh, Palestine, there are rules of law act both from coming from the 1907 Hague Regulations and also from the Fort Geneva Convention of 1949, according to which the occupying power may not alter the law, the local law in place. 
And there are some exceptions allowed under the four Geneva Conventions, but humanitarian needs or the humanitarian imperatives are not one of them, not amongst uh, such exceptions. But the argument goes, okay, if you occupy a piece of territory for half a century, and in the meantime, international human rights law have, has evolved, and the occupying power would be duty-bound to strengthen respect for human rights for the residents of the territory you occupy, in line with the evolution of society, basically. So wouldn't there be a conflict between the uh, absolute, near-absolute obligation to preserve local law especially penal law, in place over occupied territories on the one hand, and the humanitarian imperative to strengthen respect for human rights in occupied territory on the other hand. So the argument is that when there are such, when such compelling humanitarian imperatives demand uh, improving the uh, conditions of well-being in occupied territory, the LOAC rules that says, the, the LOAC rule that uh, requires the preservation of local law should not be read to mean under no circumstances may you change the law. The last example I use, I want to mention is to uh, basically, uh, this is a very uncomfortable situation where uh, on the one hand, you have a, a categoric, uh, an unqualified obligation for the evacuees of dangerous, endangered locations. Let's say, for example, there is an ethnic cleansing going on and humanitarian organizations have no choice but to evacuate endangered residents of that area. There are some rules that allow residents on humanitarian grounds, but then they must all be returned to their prior location, uh, place of uh, residence after the cessation of hostilities in that area. That obligation to return is unqualified. However, we know from history that in places like Bosnia and Herzegovina and in the Great Lakes and elsewhere, forced, returning residents to their prior place of uh, uh, living may endanger them. So would you, wouldn't you be forced essentially to uh, wouldn't you be effectively assisting in the commission of ethnic cleansing? In other words, sending these people into long-term or permanent displacement. Now, I understand that, that there is a, 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 an interesting argument coming up to the effect that those humanitarians who find themselves aiding and abetting, shall we say, in ethnic cleansing for, on grounds of the residents' personal security, might be justified under some sort of a, a, a justificatory necessity defense. That is the criminal law defense of justificatory, justificatory people's defense, thereby you will be, uh, justified in doing something that would otherwise be unlawful and criminal. Very briefly, although uh, pertinently, 
on examples that would or might point to the existence of the validity of the second hypothesis I have. In other words, would there be a rule of recognition in LOAC according to which conformity with humanitarian imperatives is sufficient for the norm to become a valid rule of LOAC, whatever LOAC would otherwise have to say about it. There is an ongoing uncertainty about whether it is, unlawful, it is lawful or unlawful to resort to belligerent reprisals against civilians in hostilities under customary LOAC. We know that it is prohibited under Additional Protocol 1, but outside of Additional Protocol 1, there, was, there is still uncertainty, a degree of uncertainty about whether it is now unlawful or it is still lawful. Of course, we have also cases coming out of the ICTY, Martich Rule 61 decision and the Kapriskit trial judgment, notably that purport to declare that belligerent reprisals are against civilians in hostilities is are, are unlawful under customary law. But there is, a, of course, a counter uh, argument coming from the British manual of uh, LOAC and also uh, even the ICRC customary law study that was written in 2005 seemed to accept that the law is not quite as settled on the matter. Here, the contrast is uh, between if we accept that human, uh, belligerent reprisals remain lawful under customary IHL, that is against civilians in hostilities, despite its evident inhumanity. And if humanity, if humanity condense such reprisals, what, how, how would LOAC solve the contrary views on this matter? Now, if my hypothesis is true, because humanitarian condemnations of belligerent reprisals is what humanity what is the content of the humanitarian imperative saying that it is prohibited is consistent with that imperative therefore are th therefore a norm according to which belligerent reprisals against civilians in hostilities under customary law is no longer uh, permitted becomes the valid rule of law if my hypothesis is true. Similarly, there is an ongoing debate between about whether force protection is lawful, even if it endangers civilian protection. The major, the, uh, a, group, uh, a substantial group of LOAC experts seem to accept that force protection is a legitimate and lawful concern for the, for the armed forces. So the belligerents are not, they, while they are obligated to um, accept some degree of risks of self-endangerment in favor of civilian protection, there is a threshold beyond which the belligerents would not be uh, duty bound to accept it. But those who favor civilian protection would say that no, because humanitarian imperatives condemn 
unduly endangering civilian populations, not doing that amounts to acting in, in breach of law. In other words, providing maximum civilian protection is what humanity demands, and that becomes the valid rule of law if you accept the sufficiency thesis. And so on and so forth and so forth. Now, you may have noticed that I was much less ambiguous discussing the necessity thesis. So the repatriation or non-repatriation of POWs, interning POWs on land or at sea and so on. I was, I found myself arguing that yes, these are uh, uh, sufficiently clear cases where uh, conformity with humanitarian imperatives is a condition for a norm to become a valid rule of law. Whereas when I moved to the uh, second hypothesis of the necessity thesis, it's much less clear cut. It's one argument that says it will be, it, sh or it should be considered unlawful to resort to belligerent reprisals against civilians in hostilities because it is so impermissibly inhumane. But the debate continues. It is not as if the weight of authority has decided, decisively shifted towards accepting that as the final legal position of law. What does all that say about the strength of my hypothesis? I am tentatively of the view that what I call humanitas gebot, that is, there is a rule of recognition in LOAC according to which conformity with humanitarian imperatives is a condition, a necessary condition for a norm to become a valid rule of LOAC is on a somewhat firmer ground than the sufficiency thesis, that is, whether there is a rule of recognition in LOAC to the effect that conformity with moral imperative, uh, the humanitarian imperatives is sufficient for a norm to become a valid rule of LOAC, whatever LOAC would otherwise have to say about the matter, this one seems to be on much less firm ground, at least as far as the evidence is concerned. In fact, a similar type of inquiry might be undertaken not just into the role of humanitarian imperatives vis-a-vis -vis LOAC lawmaking and rule discovery, but for example, imperatives of chivalry, whether chivalrous imperatives would play any such constraining role or substitutive role in LOAC lawmaking um, or LOAC rule discovery, at least the, the logical normative structure of the inquiry would be exactly the same. But of course, I have not had time to undertake that inquiry quite, quite yet. So maybe that's something I do 
right before I retire from the Swedish Defense University, if I have time left. Now, this is all to say that I am still very much in the uh, uh, brainstorming phase of this uh, research. And I would, uh, by way of concluding, I would very much invite uh, your thoughts and comments and questions about the content or the structure of my uh, thinking so far so that I might refine my research activities in the future. Thank you very much for your